according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in, uh, tell you what, we're going to deal with the good shepherd. That would be John chapter 10. As we get started there. The Good Shepherd, we uh, taught back in 2008, looks like August and September of 2008, over the span of five messages. This is in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. All right, John chapter 10. Again, this is uh, part of our fragrance of memories as we recall back to all the blessings the Lord has provided for us in the last 10 years. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the blessing that we have to assemble together, to receive instruction, to be fed, Father, by uh, the faithfulness of your Son, Father. He is the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, the Chief Shepherd. Father, we thank you that that uh, he provides for us uh, each and every day, moment by moment. We ask uh, once again for that faithfulness to manifest this hour, the faithfulness of your Son to feed us, the faithfulness of your Spirit to communicate to our human spirits, and your faithfulness, Father, to work in and through us that which is pleasing in your sight. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Again, uh, we've uh, been reviewing. Uh, we went through two weeks ago, went to, uh, picked a, an episode out of the early ministry of Jesus, and then last week picked an episode out of the Galilean ministry of Jesus. This week, uh, picking one out of the Perean and, uh, ministry of Jesus in the different sections of, uh, of the harmony of the gospel. Uh, John chapter 10 is during the Perean ministry towards the end of his, uh, of his time on earth. In fact, I'll go ahead and bring this back up again too. Remember, if you can't find where the harmony of the gospel is, you just type in harmony in the search field there and it'll take you right to it. Harmony of the gospels. And you can open up your PDF like so. So, yeah, the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. We had a class a couple weeks ago where we were talking about the angel's appearance to Zacharias and to Mary and some of the early stuff there. The uh, beginning of his ministry where he was baptized, where he was tempted. The uh, Galilean ministry of Jesus. Really, the bulk of what everybody thinks of when they think life of Christ are thinking Galilean ministry. They're thinking the circuit preaching, the, the, the walking on water, the feeding of the 5,000. They're thinking about all the... The standard things that people think about all take place there in the, uh, the Galilean ministry. Sermon on the Mount, the selection of the Twelve Apostles, healing of the centurion's servant. So much took place there in that Galilean ministry. Peter's great confession, the kingdom promise, the transfiguration. Then in October of 32, as the Feast of Tabernacles takes place, 
We start to get to his final six months. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is in the fall, what we call today October. And October of 32, approaching the crucifixion in, in uh, April of 33. And so here you'll notice uh, most of these items come from the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Luke. Um, the forgiveness of the adulteress, the light of the world, the man born blind, the good shepherd. And so that's where we are, October of 32 A.D., John chapter 10, 1 through 21. And I can even open it here. All right, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs by some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Before we get to the good shepherd portion of the chapter, we actually have uh, another I am message. I am the door. And uh, that's spelled out here as well. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Then verse 5, the stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And uh, we introduce the idea of the good shepherd here in this chapter with Um, some interesting history, some interesting uh, details that relate to how they would uh, keep multiple flocks in a pen at night, how uh, during the day different shepherds would take different flocks out into different fields and different pastures and so forth, then they would come back before nightfall and they would leave the the flock in in a collective type pen whereby multiple flocks could be brought in, could be watched overnight with a doorkeeper, with guards, you know, that would stay there the night while the, the, most of the shepherds then would go home to their families, go home and come back in the morning. And this is the process here. So when he comes in the morning, each shepherd that then comes, he calls them out and those sheep respond to his voice. If there's eight flocks in the pen, eight in, the, in the fold there, he calls for his and those sheep come out. The other ones just stay in there. Remarkable practice. All right. So Jesus introduces the, uh, the Good Shepherd Discourse with an introduction to thieves and robbers. And uh, remarkable here, where do they go? They go to the sheepfold, the aule in the Greek courtyard or walled house. And uh, we're introduced to the, the dangers of snares. At the same time that we learn to appreciate the shepherds in our lives, we also have to recognize that there are thieves and robbers as well, that the adversary has agents that would love to rip us off. Agents that are not interested in feeding us or tending us or watering us or our growth or anything. All they want is to steal, to plunder. And uh, that's warned about in this passage here. The kleptes from the verb klepto. And uh, even going back to Homer in in the Iliad, there was a contrast of shepherd and and thief as a uh, theme of literature that goes back quite a ways. New Testament passages that contrast uh, uh, shepherds and thieves there. Um... I don't think we'll go back and review all those, but they're available. You can print these off and uh, pursue your own study. What's the difference between a thief and a robber? A thief is at least sneaky about it. <laughs> it doesn't hurt you in the process. All right. The robber, though, uh, has no interest in stealth. They just rob you. They just beat you up or mug you, leave you for dead. Um, aspects there. In fact, the Lestace was the terrorist of the ancient world, the guerrilla warfare, the bandit. And uh, spoken of by, you have the uh, Sophocles, Herodotus, Josephus, Plato, the different uh, authors that are listed there. Used for the, uh, when it was used for sea robbers, uh, that term got its own term called a 
pirates, what we call pirate today. Anyway, New Testament passages related to the robbers, including the two on the cross. They weren't thieves on the cross, they were robbers on the cross. Jesus was crucified between two robbers, not between two thieves, two lestai, not between two klepti. Um, reference a work of Trench to break down the difference there on thieves and robbers. The purpose there is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. They have no good reason for being there. All right. So let's get down through verse 10 then, and then we can go over to Ezekiel, I think. The thief's purpose in the fold is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. This is consistent with the wool message that Ezekiel leveled on the faithless shepherds of Israel. And then we're introduced to the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper opens the door for each shepherd, and each shepherd is personal ownership over certain sheep but not others, called his own, quote-unquote, his own. He knows his own, and his own know him. That becomes important. All right. Each shepherd has personal names for each individual sheep, and sheep from multiple flocks can be penned together at night but will self-segregate in the morning as each shepherd leads them out. That's, that's the history. That's the... the uh, reality behind this message here in John chapter 10. All right, verse 6, uh, we've gone through verse 5 already. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what these things were, which he had been saying to them. Well, why not? What was their problem? Well, <laughs> speaking in parables um, does not always sink in immediately, and uh, although the disciples tended to ask him when they didn't figure it out they would say what is the meaning of this parable uh verse seven so jesus said to them again well he says all right let me try a different approach truly truly i say to you i am the door of the sheep all who came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not hear them i am the door if anyone enters through me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy i came that they may have life and have it abundantly. All right, so now in the second session of this, this is a, a message that has a number of sessions that unfold. In the second portion of this, he changes the metaphor and speaks of himself as a door. And a door has uh, the in and out mechanism here, and this bothers people, because <laughs> they try to view this as a uh, uh, get saved and lose your salvation kind of metaphor, right? That, well, I can go in, I can go out. They miss the point. The fact is that the sheep are still sheep, whether they're in or out, they're still sheep. The point is they go in for rest and safety at night, they go out for eating. And it's a daily routine. They're constantly going in and out. It has nothing to do with your eternal life. It has everything to do with your Christian walk and, and the times that you need rest and the times that you need food, and Christ is in charge of all of that. But we also have here the contrast with the thief. And the purpose for the thief is to kill and steal and destroy. He doesn't come through the front door. Okay, The doorkeeper does not open for a thief and say, oh, hi, are you here to take some sheep? And No, the doorkeeper only opens for the shepherds of the sheep. The thief has to go around the back way and climb over a wall and sneak in or maybe kill the doorkeeper to, to go in through the door and things of that nature. The thief is never there for a good reason. Okay, The guy sneaking in the window at 3 in the morning is not there for a good reason. All right, generally speaking. So we have this contrast here. And I think the, um, uh, 
Yeah, again, his own. I wanted to stress that as well. To him the doorkeeper opens, verse 3, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And I think there's a, there's a duality here that we can recognize when we take this metaphor, bring it into the church age, and we identify, of course, that Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd, that the under-shepherds that work for him, um, they are commanded, for example, I am commanded in 1 Peter 5, to shepherd the flock of God among you. Okay, It is not my flock, it is his flock. It says, shepherd the flock of God. Let me grab that real quick too. 1 Peter 5. Verse 2 says, Shepherd the flock of God among you. So whose sheep are they? They're God's sheep. But among you. They're your sheep. Okay, It's the flock of God, but the flock of God among you is those particular sheep within that flock that have been allotted to your charge. All right, Both are there. It is God's flock. Yes, absolutely, it is God's flock. But it is also your flock as the under-shepherd. So shepherd the flock of God, God's sheep, among you, your sheep. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. I love that. God does not compel. Not under compulsion. Doing something because I have to do it, does that glorify Christ? but voluntarily according to the will of God. And then it says, not for sordid gain. If the guy's in it for the money, well, we're going to go back to John 10. We're going to see the same thing. What's the difference between a hireling and a shepherd? The hireling runs when he sees the sheep coming because he says, hey, not my sheep, not my loss. I'm not going to risk my neck for that. All right. If he's in it for the money, that's why 1 Peter 5 and John 10 are so parallel. Um not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Those allotted to your charge. Again, they're God's sheep, but some of them have been allotted to my charge, and I'm responsible. I answer to him. I don't answer to the sheep. I answer to him. Proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I love the fact that Jesus Christ, as head of the church, is called the chief shepherd. All the terms are here. The overseer term is here. The bishop term is here. The elder term is here. Okay, He says, verse 1, I'm exhorting the elders among you as your fellow elder. So the elder terminology is here. The overseer terminology is here because it says exercising oversight in verse 2. Exercising oversight. So there's your overseer terminology, your episkopos. It's a verb, episcopeo, all right? And then your shepherding term is here, to shepherd the flock of God. And what I love about of those three terms, overseer, elder, pastor, teacher, of those three terms, they all apply to the same guy, right? They all, they all apply to, to, the, to the, the, the one that's in charge of, of the, that local church, okay? But I love the fact that of those three interrelated terms, the ones that are directly connected to Jesus Christ are shepherd, flock, chief shepherd. Okay, He's not called the chief elder. He doesn't say when the chief elder appears, you will receive your reward. He doesn't say when the chief overseer appears, you will receive your reward. It says when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive your reward. And likewise, the, uh, those allotted to your charge are called a flock. Again, that's connected to the shepherding motif. It's not connected to the age motif. 
You know, it's not as if, uh, you know, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder to elder the youngers, right? To elder the youth and to, uh, to refer to the, uh, to the uh, uh, tended ones as children, okay? It refers to the tended ones as sheep, as flock. Likewise, overseer. The, uh, the minions of an overseer might be considered slaves, or servants, okay? But it doesn't use overseer-slave terminology or elder-child terminology. When it applies to the tended and the overseen and the shepherded, it is a flock that is in view. And so it's not the chief elder, the chief overseer, it is the chief shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Anyway, Good parallels there between uh, John 10 and 1 Peter chapter 5. So the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And the abundant life is not health, wealth, and prosperity. The abundant life is the appropriate uh, intervals of rest and food. The appropriate intervals of going into the pen and going out for feeding. That's what the abundant life is all about. Day by day, being shepherded by Jesus Christ, feasting as he feeds and resting as he rest, it causes us to rest. He causes me to lie down. All right. Obviously, there's parallels with Psalm 23 also, right? With John 10 and 1 Peter 5. These are our significant shepherding passages. I would also highlight Ezekiel 34. As the notes did... This was subpoint E here in this discourse on thieves and robbers. The thief's purpose in the fold is to kill, steal, and destroy. Um, the verb klepto, the verb thuo, apolumi. This is consistent with a woe message that Ezekiel leveled on the faithless shepherds of Israel. You wonder know what the Old Testament equivalent is of John 10? Well, I already mentioned Psalm 23. But also Ezekiel 34. Let's take a look at that. Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. A message of, that is against somebody is not a happy message. Okay, It's a message of woe. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? And we find that these shepherds are actually thieves. They're just disguised as shepherds, right? Like a wolf in sheep's clothing, a thief in shepherd's clothing, a thief in shepherd occupation. And that's a problem. Now, this is a metaphor. You're not talking about literal shepherds. Okay, and that becomes very clear as you work your way through. In the metaphor of the prophecy, it uses the imagery of shepherding to relate to the spiritual shepherds of Israel. They're prophets, they're priests, they're king, they're political leaders, they're tribal elders. Think about all the shepherding responsibilities in life. Husbands should be shepherding their wives. Parents should be shepherding their children. Grandparents, grandchildren, and so forth. Older believers to younger believers, and obviously pastor to local church. There are many shepherding venues. But does anybody think that the Lord dispatched Ezekiel to deliver a message against occupational secular 
uh, you know, shepherds. Is it, you know, like as if he's setting apart shepherds compared to carpenters or bricklayers or some other tent makers or some kind of other occupation. It's entirely about the spiritual capacity here. So you eat the fat. Uh, verse 4, those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. Well, these sheep have problems. <laughs> right? This, this sounds like a lot of work. You got sickly and diseased and broken and scattered and lost. Aren't there any good sheep in this flock? All right. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. With force and severity, you have dominated them. Again, we saw it not too long, just a few minutes ago in, in 1 Peter 5. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. So they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. Now he's rebuking the shepherds, but he says, basically, your force and severity means you're not shepherding. They have a shepherd, but the shepherd isn't shepherding. The shepherd is lording. The shepherd is dominating. Okay, that's not the nature of shepherding leadership. Okay, by the way, this is a wonderful premarital counseling passage too. <laughs> you know, to convince a young man, what kind of husband are you going to be? All right, are you just going to stomp your foot and shake your fist and force and severity dominate your wife? Is that uh, <laughs> that's not a model for biblical husband uh, responsibilities here? All right, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. And so therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And what's interesting here, the Lord comes in, the Lord is going to deliver them. The Lord is going to fire these shepherds. Verse 10, he says, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them. If a shepherd is faithless, Jesus Christ will fire him in a heartbeat. Remember the admonitions in, uh, in Revelation 2 and 3? I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The elder, the uh, angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Thyatira, these pastors, if they don't listen to the rebuke of the Lord, Jesus Christ will remove them. And I will uh, demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. And here's the thing. These, these, they've been abusive. They've been um, victimized by these faithless shepherds. They've become a prey. And so when we get down here to the end of this prophecy in Ezekiel 34, he says, uh, therefore I will deliver my flock, verse 22, and they will no longer be a prey. I will judge between one sheep and another. He's going to actually bring Israel into a judgment before he allows them to enter into the millennial kingdom. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And, and uh, he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And this is, I think, we're going to see a remarkable dynamic between Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, and a resurrected David himself, who will serve as the, uh, the crown prince of uh, 
the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. You ever think about that? What a day that's going to be, huh? <laughs> you know, you know what, what would happen today if the entire line from, I mean, of any throne, I mean, you got Queen Elizabeth, right? She's queen in England. And she became queen because her dad died, right? And, and each of these monarchs starts to reign because their parent died, right? Well, what happens if simultaneously every king of England from William the Conqueror on down simultaneously was alive again? Who gets to be king of England? You know, you got all these former kings that are all back. Now, admittedly, there were some wicked ones. Let's say they don't get raised. But what about all the good kings? You know, David and Solomon and all of the righteous kings of Judah. Even Manasseh. Okay, all these, because he got saved at the end of his life. All of these righteous kings of Judah, they're all resurrected and present for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is on the throne. The greater son of David is on the throne. So think about what these former kings are going to do, right? And it's, it's never happened before, clearly. It's never happened before in the history of the world has a former king come back to life. But think about what this millennial kingdom is going to be like. And this passage, I think, in Ezekiel 34 gives us a clue. David will be prince among them. He's the founding line, uh, the founding king of this dynasty. It's called the throne of David for a reason. He's the, 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 the line is named for him. And he's back. But his greater son is the... Is, the God of the universe who reigns forever, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's David going to do? What does a, a king emeritus do, right? Well, it's like, what does a, a, a pope emeritus do? We've got two popes now because of the retired guy. And then uh, that's never happened, or not for centuries. Um, anyway, all of these previous kings. Now, normally in the human realm, you have a king and then his sons, his offspring, can become crown prince, they can become princes and dukes, they can become administrators, they can have little regions and so forth. Well, Jesus doesn't have physical offspring to do that, but what he has is a whole smear of former kings that he can assign, like David, in a, in a teaching capacity, or Solomon, in a judging, judging capacity with all his wisdom. Or, you know, what's Hezekiah going to do? What's Jehoshaphat going to do? Joash, all these good kings. They will have a role in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. In verses 7 through 10 is the I am the door metaphor. Returning back to John 10 now. I am the door. And uh, it's interesting. He says, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. And, it's in, and so Jesus actually hints at here the previous messianic claimants. It was actually pretty popular in his lifetime and, and leading up to his lifetime that, uh, I mean, they, they knew that the 69 weeks were approaching. They knew that the time for the rising of the, of the Christ was appearing. And so um, there were several others. You, we can go to Acts 5 and read about Thutis and Judas. And um, Josephus talks about a different Thutis who uh, also arose. And uh, there was a certain Egyptian that caused trouble. A lot of people claiming to be Christ's. As Jesus says, no, they're just thieves and robbers. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You can also read about Edersheim, and he talks about the messianic hopes during that period. All right. And then verses 11 through 18, I am the good shepherd. 
I am the good shepherd. Let's read 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What makes him so good? Is that he's sacrificial. Is that he's concerned over the needs of the sheep that he's tending. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves and flees, uh, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Say, the hireling, what does he care? Not his sheep. What does he care? He's just in it for the money. And, you know, if uh, the wolf eat the sheep, well, then there goes the money, and I need to go find another, another paycheck. Somebody else I can rob. He's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. They're supposed to be concerned. Remember, Paul told the Philippians that he was going to send Timothy to them because there was no one else he could send that would be genuinely concerned for their welfare. It has nothing to do with his training in Greek, his training in Hebrew, or his systematic theology. A man is ready for shepherding a flock when he reaches that point in his, the development of his giftedness. Concern for the flock. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Okay, so here's the second definition. Well, what makes him good? Verse 11 tells us what makes him good is that he's sacrificial in his attitude on their behalf. This verse tells us what makes him good. He's good because of the intimacy that he has, right? Men, we struggle with intimacy. We talked about that last hour. (laughs) I know my own, okay? Intimacy, knowing somebody is intimate. All right, and they know me. Not only do I know, but they know me. Well, I don't want them to know me. I I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to open myself up for that. Because if I open myself up, if I let them know certain things, well, then I'm vulnerable. I can be hurt. They, They will know certain things I don't want them to know. Okay, well, what's this passage talking about? I know them and they know me. Think about who you know the best. And in earthly relationships, that's going to be your spouse because that's two souls that are knit together. Think about how you know them and how they know you. All right. The remarkable thing, too, is the, um, I, the, uh, the whole process of picking a church, the whole process of, of visiting places and doing what I tell our visitors this. I say, you will know when you hear the voice of your shepherd. And that's the, that's the one factor right there. You will know to whom you have been allotted the only criteria in my book is, who have I been allotted to? And if Jesus Christ has allotted me to this guy, then that's who I've got to submit to. If he allotted me to that guy, that's who I've got to submit to. But people come and they've got this shopping list of what's their Sunday school like, what's their bowling program like, what's their dating scene like, and, and you know, can, am I likely to find a spouse here, and it, all the rest. Okay, well, I think you can. I did, right? John did. You can find a spouse here. <laughs> Anyway, that's not the point. You go where Jesus Christ assigns you, and you hear the voice of your shepherd. We're trying to use this passage to encourage these pulpits without, without pastors, these churches right now that need their shepherd. Um, Kansas City needs a shepherd. Corpus Christi needs a shepherd. And I'm praying that instead of uh, 
going through a secular interview process and perusing resumes, that they may listen for the voice of their shepherd and ask Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, to bring them the one that they have allotted, that he has allotted them to his charge. Did I say that right? Yes, okay. All right, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Wow. To that degree, to that extent, even as. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice. And I will become and will become one flock with one shepherd. And of course, we understand once the church age is unfolded and the mystery then is unveiled that there would be Jew and Gentile that become one body in Christ. For this reason, the Father loves me. Wow. Does the Father need a reason to love Jesus? But this verse says, for this reason. Among, I believe, many other reasons. The Father has always loved Jesus Christ. Jesus has always loved the Father. But beyond what they have always loved comes a new dynamic. Because let's, let's face it, the incarnation is something new. <laughs> okay, Jesus, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about the demonstration of the love that uh, takes place through experience, through the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. The obedience of God the Son to become flesh to humble himself, to obey the Father, to become obedient even to the point of death on the cross, produces an even greater love than the Father and the Son ever had before. It's for that reason then that he's exalted in ways that he has never been exalted before. So it's for this reason the Father loves me. And this I, I love this because this, actually I should have tied this in with the teenagers Sunday night. In the teen class we were in uh, Genesis 22. And showing Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And showing that when Abraham was willing to plunge the knife, Yahweh says, now I know that you love me. And I find the the demonstration there to be the the pattern here for the father loving the son and different aspects there. All right. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So here is the good shepherd. Here's everything that we're going to pattern our ministry after as a pastor of a flock or um, as a husband to a wife or parents to children or think about any shepherding role that you have. Maybe it's just older sister to younger sister. You know, in Christ, you're going to come alongside. The the buzzword is discipleship. That's uh, in all the buzzwords of the bookstores, but it's shepherding. It's older women to younger women, older men to younger men. All right. So, A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. These are all the subpoints under I am the Good Shepherd. The Good, Great, and Chief Shepherd, titles for Jesus Christ, form a trinity of shepherding passages. And uh, you got the Good Shepherd in John 10, the Great Shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20, and the Chief Shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4. We've already seen the Chief Shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4. The great shepherd of the sheep is the one who was brought back from the dead by the power of God, Hebrews 13.20. You familiar with that? Realize that the same power from God the Father that brought Jesus Christ back from the dead is working in you and me. 
the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you. That power that brought him back from the dead is the power that equips us in every good thing to do his will. So if there's something you're complaining about that you can't get it done, don't blame God. He's given you the power. He's given you the equipping. Every good thing to do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Who's doing the work? He's doing the work. The God of peace is doing the work. God the Father is working in us. Remember gifts, ministries, and effects? It's the Father who does the effects. It's the Father who works in us. The reason why we fail is because we quit letting the Father work in us. We try to do it ourselves. We do it in the flesh. We do it with the wrong motives. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's the great shepherd of the sheep, the living shepherd brought up from the dead. The good, the great, and the chief shepherd. Um... So there's a devotion for you. Take your kids through that. The Good Shepherd, John 10. The Great Shepherd, Hebrews 13. The Chief Shepherd, 1 Peter 5. Point B, the essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice in the ultimate expression of agape love. The essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice. Whether that's shepherding a pastor to a local church or a husband to a wife or parents to children, the essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice. We already saw it in John 10, 11. I lay down my life. But also, how about John 15, 13? Greater love has no one than this. That one does what? Lay down his life for his friends. For his philoi. We've got agape and philos in that same passage. You are my philoi if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you philoi, friends, lovers. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Anyway. I don't know if that shows up or not, but I color my agape blue and my philos green. Is that better? All right. So the essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice in the ultimate expression of agape. And then, of course, 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whole development of love there in 1 John chapter 3. Point C, shepherding is not for hirelings. John 10, verses 12 and 13. You know, if he's just doing it for the money, when's he going to bail? Okay, that's right. You want a guy that'll do it even if there is no money. A shepherd that'll shepherd because he's serving the Lord. Whether you pay him or not, I mean, that's just icing on the cake. That's just, you know, I mean, that's something else. But he'll do it even if there is no money because he knows that he has had sheep allotted to his charge. And he's answerable to the chief shepherd. The shepherd shepherd slash sheep intimacy is equated with the father-son intimacy. That even as the father has loved me and I have loved him. That even as I know my own, my own know me. 
that's uh, to me, that's the pinnacle. I mean, what what could be greater than the the father and the son? Other sheep, other sheep. Mention this as well. Jesus' first advent ministry was to Israel. That's that's clear, absolutely clear. It says, "I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And any time the Gentiles benefited, it was only you know the the the, the dog under the table begging for the table scraps, like with the Phoenician woman there. Matthew ten six, Matthew fifteen twenty four. His first advent ministry was to Israel, but the Gentile sheep will soon be conjoined with the sheep, with the Jewish sheep into one flock. That mystery is about to be unfolded with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension, with the coming of the Holy Spirit. There will be Gentile sheep as well. And there are presently are even now Gentile sheep. You notice that he does say, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Okay? It's not that they will be sheep someday. They are sheep now. That's verse 16. I have, present tense, other sheep which are not, present tense, of this fold. It's like in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. These things already exist. And so these sheep are of other folds. They are not of Israel. But they are sheep. They are born-again believers. They are Romans or Greeks. They're Egyptians. They're whatever. Gentiles have been saved long before the church. And you know that, right? Gentiles have always gotten saved. They're just in their own folds, their own flocks. They're not a part of um, Israel. Only with the body of Christ then will the distinction between Jew and Gentile be removed. And will it be then feasible to take all the flocks and combine them into a single fold? And that's what he talks about doing here. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And that's a future prophecy and I believe the fulfillment of that is the, um, the, the church age. Okay. That's point E in the outline. Gentile sheep will soon be conjoined with the Jewish sheep into one flock. And Acts 17, 26, Deuteronomy 32, 8, there's indications that this is the reality. And, and even the promise to Abraham, and you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's not used the father of many nations, and all of the nations will be blessed by the seed of Abraham, that is Jesus Christ, and the uh, redemption that he offers. Now, it shouldn't come as a, as a surprise. I like the uh, Matthew fifteen twenty four. This Canaanite woman, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is the furthest he ever gets away from home. The furthest he ever travels as recorded in the gospel. If he went further than this, then uh, it's not recorded in the, in the gospel record. Okay? Who knows? Maybe there were many of the things Jesus did that are not recorded in these books. Okay? So maybe he traveled further than Tyre and Sidon. But if he did, it's not recorded. This is the furthest that we have recorded. It's the only vacation we have recorded. Okay? You know, in a four-year, three-and-a-half-year ministry, I guess that's about that's a good average, one vacation every four years or so. <laughs> um, and a Canaanite woman. 
from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. How does this Canaanite woman know about Yahweh and about the son of David? She's got some doctrinal content. Where did she learn that? (laughs) Okay, this girl's saved. And who cares if she comes from the same town that Jezebel came from, right? If she's of the same race as the greatest, you know, most wicked woman the Old Testament describes there. Not this girl. This girl knows the Lord. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came saying, get rid of her. Send her away. She keeps shouting at us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this is where she comes. She's still humble and she says, uh, even dogs can feed on the table scraps. The the crumbs that fall under the table. So she doesn't argue with him. She just keeps asking. All right, Lord, I understand that. You're not here to minister to my people. But, I mean, would it hurt? Can I get a table scrap? Can I get a crumb? Something? I know I'm a Gentile dog. I don't deserve a thing. And that's, that's, that's how all our prayers ought to be. If you're, if you're making a prayer request based on what you think you've deserved, man, start that prayer over. Confess your pride. You don't deserve a thing. Return to a grace attitude. Go back to the God of prayer and offer a real prayer. All right. Anyway, I, I like that. Acts 17, 26 and Deuteronomy 32, 8. I'll take those in backwards order. Deuteronomy 32, 8. The Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Every nation, nations plural, have an inheritance. We know more about Israel's inheritance because Israel has a canon of Scripture. (laughs) The Jewish people, the Hebrew people, have Hebrew Scriptures. And so we know about Israel's inheritance. We know about their land grant, their boundaries, their destiny, their provision, their grace. But guess what? All the nations have an inheritance. When he separated the sons of man, when he separated them, the earth was divided during the days of Peleg. This is the judgment after the Tower of Babel. And he separated the sons of man. And he set the boundaries of the peoples. Borders are good. That's why Satan hates them as much. National boundaries are biblical. That's why the unbiblical enemies attack borders the way that they do just like they attack marriage they attack sex they attack everything god designed for human blessing this world perverts it and hates it and and does everything they can to, to tear it down but he set boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of and then you got a manuscript puzzle to figure out if it's the sons of israel or the sons of god the sons of yahweh or sons of god anyway Either way, I think it's the same. I think it's 70 divisions of humanity. Either organized along the lines of 70 divisions of Israel or 70 divisions of angelity. Either way. Because the 70 divisions of Israel are also organized by 70 divisions of angelity, I'm pretty sure. But every nation, every nation, when Jesus Christ is praised in the millennium, it's going to be praised by every tribe, tongue, and people. Okay? And then finally, Acts 17, 26. God doesn't need us. We don't feed Him. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. You know, what race was Adam? Human, right. (laughs) The human race comes from Adam. And then all what we call races today, all the skin colors and all the variations and blah, 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 they're all Adamic. They all come from Adam. They actually all come from Noah. Okay. We're all Noahic. But he made from one all every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, determined. Who's in charge of this? God's in charge of this. He makes the determination. Determination. There are appointed times, appointed when they rise, appointed when they fall, and the boundaries of their habitation. Who's in charge of that? God's in charge of that. And sometimes boundaries move, sometimes they're shrunk, sometimes they're gone. Sometimes the nation goes away. Yeah, we're presently standing on, uh, I mean, didn't this used to be Comanche territory once upon a time? All right. Mexican and French and Spanish and Texan and Confederate and American. Who's in charge of these boundaries anyway? God's in charge. God the Father has eternally loved the Son, but a particular love is manifested in view of the Son's volitional participation in the Father's plan. He has eternally loved the Son. There's never been a time that the Father did not love the Son. All right? John 3.35, John 5.20, John 15.9 and 10, John 17.26. It's pretty easy to find a verse that says God the Father loves the Son. All right? And that's always been the case. But in John 10, it says, for this reason, the Father loves me. And this is a particular reason for a particular aspect, unique, between the Father and the Son. A particular love is manifest in view of the Son's volitional participation in the Father's plan. Remember, the Father set forth a plan, but the Son had to go in perfect agreement, volitionally serving the Father's plan. And this is described here in John 10, 17, and as well as Proverbs 8, 30 and 31. I was daily his delight. Proverbs 8, 30 and 31. I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, or playing always before him in the imagery of a, of a baby here. But I was beside him as a master workman. This is Proverbs 8, where Yahweh creates the universe. And we see that the father was the architect, the son was the builder, the master workman, the carpenter. Rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Particular love of the father for the son. Point G, the good shepherd's soul is that which he lays down that which he pours out, and that which he takes up again. And I think we're clear on this, in case you're confused. It wasn't his physical death that saved us. All right? It wasn't his hemoglobin. It wasn't his physical blood. The the, the fluid in his bloodstream. 
We talk about the blood of Christ as a metaphor. The blood of Christ, which he did in fact shed on the cross. But it was his soul. Remember the life is in the blood? Okay? As a picture, as a metaphor. And yes, he bled. But it was his soul that he laid down. It was his soul that he took up again. It's the spiritual death of Christ on the cross that saves us. That's why he says it is finished while he's still physically alive. John 10, 18 is soul. Um, Isaiah 53 talks about pouring out. Right? Remember that? Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out his soul, his nephesh, to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The pouring out of his soul, the laying down of his soul. What was it that God the Father imputed our sins to? His body or his soul? Okay. And that's what he lays down. And that's what he takes up again. Okay. His soul. The... Um, Recognition, too, that when he took it up again, he was still, his body was still on that cross. I didn't know that for years and years and years. I thought that he got his spiritual life back when he got his physical life back, that it was part of the resurrection on, on Easter Sunday. And then, uh, was it Ralph or was, uh, maybe it was John Eichmann, some of the pastors said, well, He actually took it back up before he said, to tell us, it is finished. Before he said, into my hands, I co- into thy hands I commit my spirit. What, did he commit his dead human spirit to the Father's hands? No. He had taken his life back up again and had proclaimed truth and said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He was already spiritually alive again when he laid down his life physically. Spiritually alive in the three days in the grave. Spiritually alive when he made his victorious proclamation into the lower parts of the earth. All right, so he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Um, So the good shepherd's soul is that which he lays down and takes up again. The father had given him that authority to lay it down and take it up again. It is his spirit that is committed to the father at the point of physical death. Luke 23, 46. Of course, that soul spirit unity that we talk about. And then the Jewish leaders go schizo. Uh, It was not a resounding round of applause at the end of Jesus' message. Verses 19 through 21. Contrast between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint caused some to doubt Jesus' sanity. And yet the undeniable miracles left others without any answers. John 10, 19 through 21. So he finishes these words. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And so a division occurred. A schizo, right? A schisma occurred. Again, 
among the Jews because of these worries. There were several schisma through the uh, years of Jesus' ministry. Many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? He is just out of his mind. He has a demon. Don't pay attention to anything he has to say. Others were saying, well, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. There's no shortage of demoniacs around, and they all tend to be vile, loud. They scream. They howl like an animal. They live in a cemetery. They they throw themselves into fire. They drool. Uh, Demoniacs are pretty easy to spot. In delivering a message with similes and metaphors and power of uh, thieves and robbers and the good shepherd and lady, that's not a demoniac. Okay? <laughs> a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? He's got authority. He's got power. This has to be the Christ. Well, some uh, thought so and some did not. All right, well, there you have it. Uh, next week, we will pick... What are we picking here? Um, that was an episode from the last Judean and Prean ministry. These other ones, we get to the final week of work at Jerusalem. Um, foot washing, maybe, or some of these in the upper room. Might review some one of those. Anyway, next week will be our final review class uh, because uh, we're not having Life of Christ during my Africa travels. So, class next week, and we'll uh, we'll give you the final of the Life of Christ reviews. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for all your blessings. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.